Well, good morning again, everybody. I, uh, I'm, there's, I may knock some things over up here. I'm not sure exactly what I can do, but I, I can't believe I knocked over that lamp. Uh, I'm a mess. We are, uh, I'm super stoked to be in God's Word with you today, and we're going to be in John chapter 4. You know, we're reading through John, um, and I hope you read through, I hope you were in John 4 this week. And I hope you can be in John 5 next week. So the idea is that you would slowly but surely make your way with us so that you've studied the whole text in advance. Details, reading about it. I, I, you know, I actually gave away all my Bibles, so I was going to give away like a study Bible, but I gave, one, I gave them all away. But I'm hoping that you're doing the work to kind of dig in, write some questions down in the, in the margins of your Bible, which is totally legal, and, uh, and, and have the experience of studying John with us. Um, so we're in John chapter 4 this week, and John chapter 4 is the study of the, uh, w- part of it at least, is the story of the woman at the well. And what's so great about this story is that this is a woman who was a novice in her faith, really. She was not a mainstream believer in Judaism. She was a Samaritan, as we know. We'll talk about what that means. And so Jesus came to capture her heart and woo her and connect with her, woo her spiritually, I mean, and connect with her in a way that she really needed that to be connected. And so um, this is such a, a sweet and cool passage in John chapter 4. So I hope you're going to, uh, can you open your Bibles for me and grab them? Because I'm not going to put this on the text. This is just the introductory uh, verse that we're starting in, in verse 3. Um, uh, page number from the church Bible. Does anybody have one? If they grabbed a, there's Bibles in front of you. 1065, which is the same page as last week, which means we're just moving through super slow. I love it. 1065 in John chapter 4. And what I want to do is I'm going to walk us through the text again, a little bit like we're doing some Bible study, okay? And, um, and then I want to do a little bit of teaching about the thought of worship being in spirit and in truth, because that's what Jesus says here in this text. You ready? You got it out there? Okay. So hopefully everybody's got their Bible open and they can take a look on, on their app or, or on, on, the, on the text in front of them. So Jesus, the first couple verses actually, well, we'll read them because you've got your Bible open, verse 1 and 2. Jesus had learned the fair, uh, that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. It was, and it says, although it was, it was his disciples, not Jesus who baptized. But uh, because the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was gaining in popularity, he left Judea where he was and he went back once more to Galilee. In other words, he left the area, the region around Jerusalem, and he went back kind of out into the rural area, and he was kind of slowing down the word spreading about who he was and what was happening, because people were hearing, the Pharisees were hearing. And if the Pharisees were hearing, they were the religious leaders that we talked about last week. If the Pharisees were hearing about it, then the Romans were hearing about it, and they were the political leaders, and Jesus didn't want, he wasn't ready for a direct confrontation with either of them, and so he was like, oh, we got to shut this down a little bit, so I'm going back to Galilee. And then verse 4, and then he had to go through Samaria. Now, let's talk about geography for just a second and before we get any further in the text. So here's a map that may or may not be helpful from where you're sitting or online. Hello, online people. I realized online people, I did not help you guys pass the piece. I should have given you direction, but I bet you that some of you folks put that right in the chat or you passed the piece to the people in the room with you. Hopefully you figured out an online version of that because we didn't want to leave you out. So online people, love you. Okay. So, um, 
so it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So here's a map. And if you can't read all of the, this is the, the land of Israel. The big body of water down at the bottom, that's the Dead Sea. And kind of at the top left of that, so northwest of the top of the Dead Sea, is Judea, and that's where, where Jerusalem is, okay? And that's an area of, of, uh, of as we call now, Palestine or, or Israel. And so Judea is there, Jerusalem's there, and the top body of water up above is the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Jordan River flows between the two. That's that line that goes up and down north-south across the whole land. And Samaria is between the two. So Galilee is up by the Sea of Galilee, and Judea is down by the Dead Sea, and Samaria is between the two. And what would happen is that the the Jewish people wouldn't travel through Samaria. Now, let's talk about that for a sec. When you look at the text, it says in verse 4, it says, now Jesus, what's the verb in that verse, in in verse 4? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, in fact, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, Jewish people didn't go through Samaria. They went around. What they would do is they would cross over from Judea. They would cross the Jordan River at the top of the Dead Sea, and they would go up on the east side of the Jordan River. And when they got safely around Samaria, they would come back into Galilee. Why did they do that? Because the Samaritans were people that the Jewish people really despised. There's another way to say it. They felt like that those people had been an abomination to their religion and to their, their race, really. It was racism. And the reason they were of a different race, these Samaritans, were they were actually part Jewish and part mixed with all the other peoples in the world that the Assyrians, 700 years before Christ, when the Assyrians had come through and walloped all the different people and collected a bunch of refugees, they sent them into Samaria to mix with the Jewish people, to bring in their gods, to bring in their culture, to bring in their bloodlines, and this group became not just a Jewish group, but mixed up people, and the Jews couldn't deal with that because they had a religion that was kind of skewed and different, partly Jewish, but partly not, and they had a bloodline that was partly Jewish and partly not. And so the Samaritans were people who, if you engaged with them, you would defile yourself according to Jewish law, the religious teaching. And so they avoided them. Do you not just love then that Jesus is like, hey, I have to go through Samaria. Then does this officer like, uh, no, you don't have to do what, you don't have to do anything. In fact, you could teleport us up to Galilee if you want, but why are we going through Samaria? And so Jesus has a plan, right? Verse four, five. So he came to a town in Samaria called uh, Sychar and near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and it was about noon. This well, you guys, was by a mountain called Mount Gerizim and that mountain was the mountain where the Samaritans built their temple and worshiped God the way that they thought God was supposed to be worshiped. Now they didn't have all the Jewish scriptures. They had all kinds of other mixed up Baal worship, false idols and all kinds. They had all kinds of mess up going on. But this Mount Gerizim is where they had this, uh, this temple. But which, by the way, the Jews destroyed about 100 years before this story with Jesus in a whole racial religious squabble. So this, this, this um, well is kind of at the foot of this Samaritan religious icon, Mount Gerizim. So verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? 
for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus, in his, in his omniscience, he had to go through Samaria because he had to connect with this woman. So now he's waiting, and here she comes up at noon, and it's just Jesus and this woman at this well. And Jesus um, said, hey, will you give me a drink? Now, the Samaritan woman said, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. You guys with me? Verse 9, everybody watching it in your Bibles? How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Greek there says, for Jews do not defile themselves by drinking or using the same vessels as a Samaritan. So this woman is like, what is a rabbi doing out here speaking to a woman, speaking to a Samaritan, speaking to a woman without her husband around? Like this is just the whole thing is completely out of bounds of what normally happens. And she's like, what is happening right now? Why are you asking me for a drink? And there's an edge to this woman. And I, we can't fully get all that she was feeling, what was behind it as we kind of read through their interaction. And if you've read through this text before, you've probably felt that, right? You're like, what is she doing? Is she mad? Is she moved emotionally? Is she like, what's happening right now? Well, in this, when she, when, when she says to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? She, we, we begin this encounter wondering, okay, she's like, who is this guy and what's going to go on? Well, verse 10, Jesus said, Right away, he goes right there. So there must have been something embedded in their dynamic, something embedded in her tone, but he goes right there to a religious conversation, to a spiritual conversation. She goes, how come you're asking me for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, one of the reasons I love like the chosen film series and others like that is that they fill in some of the gaps in the conversation with good imagination. It's not, a lot of that stuff's not written in scriptures, but there had to be some more conversation here. Like it's such an odd dynamic that Jesus is right there and he starts going, look it, let's you and I talk about living water, which we know when Jesus talks about living water and he's going to do it later, he's going to talk about it later on in his ministry, he's talking about being filled with the presence of God himself, which only comes from being forgiven and saved by God and in a relationship with God. So he goes, let's talk about living water, me and you, to this woman. Sir, the woman said, verse 11, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? I, I confess that I still don't know. I haven't found a commentator yet who helps me understand that comment. Like Nicodemus, like she's not a stupid person, so she must be realizing that there's now something happening. There's a spiritual conversation that's beginning to take place. And she's interacting with Jesus on some other level than this, this water and this well, because Jesus uses the word living water. And maybe she just means, she thinks he means super clean water, and she's like, but why are you here and you don't have a rope down into it and you don't have a way to draw it out? then why does she bring out Jacob, which is the spiritual ancestor of both Samaritans and the Jews? So she's already like, oh, we're going spiritual. All right, and so she's beginning to try to prod to figure out what is really happening in this moment. And she may be saying, what are you saying right now, essentially? And Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water, he doubles down on, you know, we're really having a spiritual conversation Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says to him, 
now she's like, you, okay, I want some of that then. Where do I get that water? Then I don't have to come here anymore and get my water here. Now, she may have thought, okay, that means I'm actually not going to physically be thirsty again, but here's what I really think is happening. If you saw my Instagram post on this text, I really think that the woman is saying, I'm so tired of living under the shame of who I am and how I've been trying to find life. And if you're offering me spiritual life, I want it. You see, what we didn't tell in the story, of course, where we're just about to get to, is that she's a woman who'd been married five times, and she'd been married five times under all kinds of shady circumstances, and she was a person who was scorned for that. She was a person who was living a life of shame for that, and that's probably why she came to the, the, uh, the well in the sixth hour, it says, or noon, because in the heat of the day, then the other women who, who, that didn't want to associate with her didn't have to, and she came and was alone. And she basically is saying some version to Jesus, like, I don't know exactly all that you're saying, but if you're offering life and you can rescue me from where I have been stuck and the shame that I'm living under, that's what I want. Now, as I said in the Nicodemus sermon last week, and our, begin- our encounters with Jesus, they start with these, um, there's a God thing going on right now moment before you fully understand what Jesus is doing. And so that's what she's having. She's having that God moment. So she goes, give me this water so I don't have to keep living the way that I'm living. I'm so tired of this. And it may be that she had a little bit of edge to her, to her, but, you know, where Jesus is like, look it, you're not going to get thirsty if you follow what I'm talking about. And she may have said something like, well, then you got to prove that. And Jesus goes, okay, let's talk about it. You go get your husband and come back. Well, this is where it starts to unfold. I have no husband, she says. And Jesus replied to her, this is where he he was reading her mail. He said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. He was basically communicating, I'm the Lord of truth and I know it all. Sir, the woman said, verse 19. Um, There's something happening here. This is a God moment, she says. I can see that you're a prophet. Now, where the conversation would go from here could kind of be anybody's guess, but I wouldn't suspect that it took the turn that it did. Because she says, sir, whoa, how do you know my life? You know what's going on. You do speak truth. You know what's happening in my life. You must be from God is essentially what she's saying. And then she says, uh, our ancestors worship on this mountain, but your ancestors say that they should worship in Jerusalem. She asked this full religious question. Now, what do you think is going on there? It's interesting to me that once you have a God moment, once you start to have an encounter with the real God, if you really do encounter Jesus and begin to walk with him, the conversation actually becomes a worship conversation. And the reason it becomes a worship conversation is because you're realizing if this is God, then I gotta live my life for this. I gotta be sold out for this. If this is a God moment, then I have to be all in. And so Jesus says, you don't have one husband, you don't have five, you had five husbands and the guy you're with isn't your husband. Like I, he's like, look at you're stuck in your shame. You're stuck in your way of life. 
And she goes, well, I want to worship, but how am I going to worship? Tell me how to do it. Tell me how to bring my sacrifice of praise. Tell me how to bring my sacrifice to cleanse my sin. I can't even go. You Jews, you knocked down our temple 100 years ago. You tell me, you, this is a God moment, but what am I supposed to do with it? I can't go to the mountain anymore. The temple doesn't exist. I can't go to Jerusalem. I'm not allowed there. I can't even go out in the morning with everybody else because I'm full of shame. She's basically saying, you're offering life, but I'm kept from it. I'm stuck. I have no access to this. But she wants to come and bring her sacrifice of praise. She wants to bring her heart, the sacrifice that pleases the Lord is one of contrition, a contrite spirit, right? She wants to come to the Lord, but she doesn't know how to do it. And that's why it's now a worship conversation. She's like, how you know about me? I want to encounter you, but how do I worship? How do I live this out? And Jesus replied, woman, believe me, a time is coming. We're in verse 21. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. He's like, yep, you guys don't have the full picture. That's true. The Jews have kept you out of the story. And you have for, for generations now been out of the law, out of the temple worship. And we worship what we do know. Yep, it's true. Salvation is from the Jews. God has protected his work of salvation through the Jewish people. Yep, but a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, I'm going to give you freedom from being stuck away from God in the life that you've been living. Because worship isn't about at that temple. It isn't about being a perfect Jew. It isn't about time or place. It is about the spirit and truth. And that's what God's going to look for. And she goes, I don't even have a category for that. Maybe, and this is the shred of just that, 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 that the longing in every culture, no matter how, how far away they are from God, the longing in every individual, no matter how far away they are from God, she goes, maybe, there's a, maybe the Messiah really will come. See it? When he comes, he'll explain it all. He'll sort it all out. And Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, and kind of for the clearest time we have in scriptures, says, I, the one speaking to you, I'm that Messiah. What a mind blower that the Savior of the world, as he's introducing his ministry and coming to bring the good news to the whole world, goes out of his way to go through Samaria to the lowest of the low people, finds the lowest of the lowest woman who's despised even by those people, meets her alone and says, I want to set you free. Come on now. Come on now, church. That's your story. That's your story that he came and found you and captured your heart and said the way that you've been living, the way that you thought you could find life, the ways that you were stuck, I'm he. I'm the end of all of your searching. And the Father's looking for people who are those kind of worshipers, spirit and truth, real, authentic, not religious, not in the right culture, not in the right geography, not with the right education, not with the right morals, 
folks that come and place themselves before this God. Oh, that's such, hey, this is why they call it the good news. You know that? This is good news. Well, what are a couple things? I want to give us a few pieces of information here around this idea of spirit and truth so we know what that means. You see, so this, this concept, I mean, why this is, Jesus is coming to say this is a worship conversation because you're going to give your life to this. You're going to dedicate yourself to this. Let me give you a definition of worship that I stole from two different people and then put a little of my own seasoning in it. Here we go. Worship, see, worship's not Sunday morning service, right? Worship's not a program, right? This is what worship is. Worship is a real internal thing that happens with somebody. It's a celebration of God and his supreme worth. Is that great? Is that a great sentence? That's that one I fully stole. It's a celebration of God in his supreme worth so that every part of our lives, every aspect of our life is oriented and inspired by who he is and what he has done. Let's look at it one more. Look at it one more time. Worship is a celebration of God in his, and in His supreme worth. It's like God, you are worthy. You are so worthy, and I celebrate that. So that every then, because of that, every aspect of my life—not just singing a song at an hour on Sunday morning—but every aspect of my life is oriented around His supreme worth. And every aspect of my life is inspired by, moved by, directed by, impassioned by who he is and what he has done. And that's why God said, why he seeks and what Jesus said, that we would worship him in spirit and in truth. Because that right there is a true relationship with God. A couple things about what it means to worship in spirit and truth. First, what does it mean to worship in the spirit? And the text says to worship in the spirit. Should have put that on this slide, worship in the spirit. Because as we're going to see in a second, it's not, it doesn't, well, it's clearly not about the material or the physical. That's the first point I want to make. And that, in that sense, it's spirit. It's not about the material, the physical, or the concrete, or the forms, right? It's not that way. Worshiping God is not about a form of worship. It's not about an hour of worship. It's not about a song of worship. It's not about, it's it's way past that. And and we, we would have to know that it would be past. It's not about the building that we're in. It's not about the group that we belong to, right? It has to be. I mean, God, in Acts, Paul is given, Acts 17, Paul is given a sermon, and he says, the God who made the whole world and everything in it does not live in a temple built by human hands. And it, says, it goes on to say, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. But we keep orienting ourselves around the service of worship or, or like well, we need to do something or it's at this time, it's this place. Like, this is a mind-blowing concept that worship is about this relationship with God, a celebration of his supreme worth and oriented around all that he is and all that he's done. It's way bigger than that. It's not material and, and, and the form or the physical part of worship. The woman asked, hey, where am I supposed to worship? She asked a where question, and God answered it with a who question. That should tell us enough right there. Do I worship in this temple? Do I worship in that temple? How do I get access to that temple? What do I do? And he's like, no, no, I'm breaking down all of those barriers. 
It's the Father in truth, in relationship. So it doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter how you worship because all the forms are truly, they just, forms just truly, they serve, sorry, they serve true worship. Forms serve true worship. Forms serve that thing inside where we ascribe to God his worth and then we orient our lives around it. The forms do that. The forms aren't the worship themselves. And the church has gotten this wrong for all of Christian history. They've relegated worship to Sunday. They've relegated worship to a church. They're then distracted by the externals like musical style or cultural idiosyncrasies. It's never been about the externals. It's never been about those things. And we bend over backwards trying to make sure that culturally we've got cultural music that works for you and that works for you and that you're happy and that we got to change from that. And the church goes back and forth and trying different things. The forms are only the attempt to serve true worship, which is a celebration of the supreme worth of God and then a life oriented around it. You get that, right? So you guys, here's my little, here, ready? When you come, you don't attend a worship service that we're doing to try to make you happy. When you come, you enter into a form that we're doing the best job we can to promote authentic relationship with God and true worship. And that's on you. And that's been in the scriptures. That's been in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about it. He, in Matthew chapter 15, he quoted Isaiah 29 where he goes, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The prophet Amos spoke the words of God. Amos chapter five, God spoke through the, the prophet. He goes, listen to this. He goes, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. Can you imagine God saying that about a gathered people? And the reason is, they weren't living it out. They weren't orienting their lives around it. They weren't uh, living inspired by it, all that God was and all that God had done. They were just doing forms of worship. And so God goes, I hate it. I hate when you people gather together. I can't stand what you bring me. He goes on to say, you bring me burnt offerings. I don't want them. You bring me these fellowship offerings. I reject them, he says. And then he goes, I can't stand the sound of your music. Wow. You know, that keeps me up at night. I mean, I'm, I'm shepherding a church along with these other shepherds on our team. We're shepherding a church. That we want to provide a form where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, celebrating the supreme worth of God and orienting and being inspired to live their full lives around who he is and what he's done. We don't want to do a form where God's like, I'm so sick of your music. I'm sick of the stuff that you guys do. Because you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Worship is on us. And it's real, and it's free, and it's great news. Okay, where was I? Okay, so not only is it about worshiping in spirit, about the, not about the material or the physical or the forms. No, what is it about then? It's about living water. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about worship that is, a, listen, It's not just like the Holy Spirit prompts you to sing better or the Holy Spirit makes you feel a warm fuzzy. That's not not what I mean by this. This is about the true worship. He said it's living. Jesus was teaching about living water, right? He said it's living water that satisfies all of your thirst. It's living water that will keep flowing from within you. It's living water that will keep bringing life from inside. It's an internal motivation. In other words, you are changed from the inside to be a worshiper because the Holy Spirit, you're living by the Holy Spirit. 
And then the Holy Spirit, we talked about last week in, in Nicodemus' story in John chapter 3. The Holy Spirit is the one who, the agent of new birth. Well, the Holy Spirit is the agent of life at its fullest. And as you walk with God, then you are walking in worship. If you walk with God, you're recognizing his supreme worth. If you walk with God, you're orienting yourself around who he is and what he has done. And so true worship, he says, is worship in the spirit. It's about not the forms, but it's about the living water from within. What all that means is it is about a life of walking of always in worship because we're always present because the Holy Spirit is always indwelling us. Now, I'm out of time, but I want to talk about truth really quickly. Worship in spirit, worship in truth. This is what his father seeks. He says, those who worship in spirit and in truth, all the other barriers are broken down. Well, what's the truth? The truth is, and Jesus said it in verse 10. I don't know if you can show me that. That slide, in verse 10, Jesus said to the woman at the beginning of the conversation, right when he went, hey, can I have a drink? Why are you asking me for a drink? Whatever, Jesus is like, look, at if you knew the gift of God and you knew who it was who asked you, it would blow your doors off. And you'd be wanting it. You'd know that's the answer to all of your longings. So Jesus is saying, true worship is about understanding who it is you're talking to and understanding the gift that I bring. And the way I characterized it here in my outline was it's the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about what he has done and the truth, therefore, by extension, about who we are and what we need. I mean, who's Jesus? He's the one who came to be the end of all of our searching. He's the Messiah. He's the one that reconciles the world to God. And what has he done? He's done exactly that. He's brought the gift of salvation. And so we become worshipers because of who he is and what he's done. We don't become worshipers because we're under condemnation. We're trying to appease God. We're not worshipers because we're trying to make ourselves more moral. We're not worshipers because this is a philosophy that we resonate with or we want to adhere to a certain religion. No, we worship because this is a savior who has taken us out of our hopeless place and brought life when we couldn't provide it ourselves. That's why we worship who he is, what he has done. And the implication to that is I need that. The truth about who we are is that I need that. And that's the woman in verse 15 saying, you've got to give me some of this water so I don't have to keep doing this. And that's what a worshiper's heart does in spirit truth. They come before the Father in worship and go, I need you because I can't keep doing this. I need a Savior. I need rescuing. I need to be pulled out of my shame. I need to be um, connected to God. And I need to know how to worship because I, it's all uh, being religious enough and moral enough and perfect enough and all that is I can't, I can't do that. And so this woman knew. And that's why she asked, where do I worship? Where do I go to worship? Where do I go to make my sacrifice? Where do I go to find forgiveness? And Jesus said, right here, it's heart and mind. It's spirit and truth. You don't have to go anywhere. I'm him. I'm the savior. Now, I want to show you a clip really quick before we quit from The Chosen. This this picture of the, of the woman at the well in the Chosen series. They had already had the conversation, the beginning conversation, the dance about, about um, give me a drink and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to see this place where they arrive. He has just said to her, now I know about your husbands. I know your story. I see you. And I want you to see this interaction. Remember, these guys have 
given us permission to do this. I want to attribute it right. This is the, the chosen. Um, it's shown with their permission. You can see the full series at watch.angelstudios.com, okay? Watch.angelstudios. They're the ones who make it, angelstudios.com, or you can download the chosen app on your phone. I really highly recommend this and thank them for allowing us to show this in a public setting. Check out Jesus' encounter when he tells the woman he knows her story. Oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth, heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity was excited to be married, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you, and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with, but you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. 
everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise? I promise. When, when Jesus says soon, it's just the heart, tears gush from my eyeballs. It's such good news. And the text says when Jesus is talking to her, a time is coming and how, has now come, right here, when worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They're who the Father is looking for. And he demonstrated that by having to go through Samaria and find her. He went for her. He sought her heart to rescue her. And he does that to every single one of us. He's looking to regather you under his arms and restore you to a relationship with the Father. If he went to Samaria for them, he will go to Marin for you. He's coming for you and your heart, and he's not here to find a religious adherent. He's not here to condemn you for your sin, but he's looking to walk with those who will worship him in spirit all the time, celebrating his supreme worth orienting their lives around that truth. He's looking to walk with those who worship in truth, those who know everything he is and everything he brings. I pray that today you would rekindle that relationship that God called us into or start it for the first time because that's who the Father is seeking and it's you. We can even respond now on earth as it is in heaven right now by worshiping the Lord. So let's stand together and respond to him by this truth.